This is the EWN Podcast Network. You are listening to Sharing Stories with Helen Rose. My guest today is my lovely friend, Diane Weekly. Um, Diane... Diane and I met at um, eWomen Conference in 2019 and we're instant friends and we didn't miss any of the conference but we sure did spend a lot of time in that coffee shop talking didn't we? (laughs) Yes we did. (laughs) Diane thank you for joining me today. I'm not even going to give a background because you this is what I think this is what connected us immediately was you had written this story that I think is absolutely beautiful, and I think we'll title the podcast this, but you had written a book um, or a story, short story, uh, Fill Your House with Flowers. Do you want to talk about what the background is to that? Absolutely. And uh, Helen, it's such a pleasure to be here today, and thank you so much for having me on your show. It's very exciting and always good to see your face. I miss you. Um, I miss you too, and we're not going <laughs> to see each other this year, it sounds like. <laughs> no, I think, well, it's probably good. When we all get yeah. to your things will have uh, shaken down a little bit better, I think. But yeah, I agree. My experience really um, about the Fill Your House with Flowers was, um, you know, I was... I was going through a divorce and um, I had two sons, uh, two young boys who um, were like five and seven. And, um, you know, it's, as time goes on, they get either older or younger. I'm not sure which, but I know they were pretty young. <laughs> and uh, I was just feeling really depressed. You know, like most people, um, I did not enter into a marriage expecting it to end or with the intention of ever getting a divorce. In fact, part of my whole desire was to break the chain and uh, having come from a blended family and a, a a remarried family, I really wanted to have it be different. So I was uh, very saddened. Um, and back then, when people went through divorce, there were not a lot of support groups. There were not a lot of ways to ritualize the endings and beginnings of things. Um, and so I found myself really feeling very sad and depressed and finally went to a therapist. And um, I, what was lovely about it was that I discovered him over, you know, through a chance mailing. And I've always been into storytelling and myth and believe that each of us um, have a purpose here and a story to unfold, right? So um, I went to see him. And um, one day I was in his office and he said to me, um, you know, if you could do it, if, if you could do something that would make you truly, truly happy, what would it be? And... Um, you know, no one had asked me that question before. It's a good question, isn't it? It's a big question. What do you want? Like, I didn't even know I had the right to ask for that, really. Mm-hmm. And um, I said, well, I would fill my house with flowers. And it kind of popped out, totally by surprise. And he said, well, why don't you do that? So there it was, hanging out there. And I'm going, um, well, I can't. Um, it would be very expensive. It's not practical. I have two sons. I have to do this. And I went on and on. And he said, I challenge you. I challenge you to do something for yourself that would bring you joy. 
And, um, and so I said, okay, I will. So I went home that night uh, with my uh, children, picked them up from the after school. And, uh, and I said, uh, we had dinner and I said, you know, we're going to go to, we're going to go to the Bilo. And our local supermarket had this huge and beautiful floral area. And I said to them, we're going to go and we're going to pick out as many flowers as we want. And we're going to fill our whole living room, our big, great room full of flowers. And we're not going to stop until we've gotten everything we like and you get to pick anything you want. And they were kind of looking at me like, whoa, what's going on with our mom? And we piled into our little Toyota, little gray Toyota and sped on over there. And um, it was just a, a, a delight. So the three of us, my two sons and myself went in there and, you know, they just went for everything. It was, you know, mom's gladiolas, um, you know, everything possible, hydrangeas, roses, you name it, and in as many colors as possible. And so we filled cart. We had a, a, like two carts worth, and uh, rolled this stuff up to the cash register. And um, I got to the cashier, and that was all we had was flowers. And so she rang the whole thing up, and um, she said that will be one hundred dollars and whatever tax. And my heart kind of, you know, stopped for a minute. Uh, that was groceries for at least a week, maybe a little bit more. And certainly not what I had expected. I mean, I knew it was going to be expensive, but I didn't expect that. And this was back in 1990. So the, the, what you could get for a hundred bucks was a little different than two. When you're facing um, single, like me as a single mother, I don't think for years I ever bought anything. I bought all no name, everything, because it was just, even if it were, you know, 40 cents cheaper, you know, like you say, 40 cents, uh, you know, if you do that times five, you know, that's uh, two bucks that could go towards eggs or bread or whatever we are talking 30 years ago. But yeah, that when you're telling that story and it rings up to $100, that's a lot of money when you're facing life on your own with two kids. It absolutely is. And, and uh, you know, I was very much in the habit and not enjoying it, but always having to tell my kids, no, we can't get that. We have to stay within our budget. Uh, no. You know, you get tired of doing that. And it's hard. And so, you know, but I, I kept that smile on my face and I, I just said, thank you and wrote the check. That was back in the days of writing checks. We didn't do the debit cards at that time. But um, then we, you know, we're rolling the carts out to the car and all of a sudden it dawns on me, how in the world are we going to get this home? Because my Toyota was a little, you know, compact deal. So <laughs> we, uh, luckily I didn't have anything in the trunk. We filled the trunk. We filled the back seat. Uh, we filled the front seat. Everybody was all scrunched down in there. And there we are, you know, driving back to the house and um, opened the door to the home and into the great room we went with all of these flowers and it was just it was just an amazing feeling and then here again too not all of them had uh, I didn't have vases for everything some of them were potted some of them had you know the pots that they were in but we had to scour the whole house up down in the basement and everywhere we could to find containers to put these flowers into 
And we were finally at the, at the end where we had these beautiful gladiolas. They were this brilliant red. And, um, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I one, I don't have a container big enough. I'm going to have to cut them, but I don't think I have another container in the house. And then my son, he saw this old coffee pot. It's one of those turn of the 20th century coffee pots that had been my great grandmother's. And it was uh, just brown and had this relief around it of um, like a story. And it was really the story of the woman at the well. And if you're not familiar with that story, um, there's a woman at the well who had been married many times before and probably had a pretty negative reputation. And Jesus comes to her and asks her for water. And she says to him, you know, do you even know what you're asking, who you're talking to? People like you don't talk to people like me. And the story goes that uh, he said that he, um, he knew all about her and that he was there to give her more than water, living water. So anyway, I love that old coffee pot. It was my great-grandmother's. And I, um, my son, actually, one of my sons went over and lifted off the lid and looked inside. And it's like, oh, mom, oh, mom. And I'm going, what is it? What is it? And he reaches in and pulls out a hundred dollar bill. That is just, that just is the craziest, like, yeah, I love this story. <laughs> what, when he did that, because you originally thought you had pulled out the hundred dollar bill, but he I did, I did. Yeah. And I was, you know, it's funny how your, your, um, our brains are wonderful. They, they will play tricks upon us with our memories. And um, I did think it was me. And so I told him about the story that I was writing and he said, mom, no, mom, that was me. <laughs> I'm going, oh, it was? Okay. <laughs> but there's, there's absolutely no dispute that there was $100 in that pot. Right. And what did you do in that moment? Were you kind of just like speechless or were you like, oh my gosh? Because I know you have, you have a deep faith, don't you, Diane? I do. I do. And uh, believe me, it's been tested over the years. Um, I love the Jewish tradition that allows you to wrestle with God and shout and yell and uh, all that stuff, because we've had plenty of arguments over the years. But it was really a lovely thing to find this. And what had happened was my grandmother, um, on the other side of um, on my family tree, had sent me a $100 bill, I don't know, sometime before in a letter, and because she wanted to help me. And um, me being the frugal woman that I was, said, well, I'll put this away for a rainy day, popped it in that pot, and then totally forgot I had it. So, you know, it's, it's amazing to me the, that how, um, how circumstances oftentimes will come into play and the synchronicity of things come together. And it was perfect timing. I, it was just, um, it was a beautiful thing to see that it was managed. And by taking that really was a leap of faith for me because to do something that expensive, but also something that gave me joy. Yeah, it gave my kids, they had a fun time, and, but I didn't usually do things for myself. So it was quite wonderful to see that the universe, however you want to look at that, so yeah. that and does support us in our choices, especially if we're doing them for the right reason. Yeah, and I think that the, you know, part of the, um, thing that I get out of that story is that, um, you know, we, we kind of, 
often will go through our lives without a, a lot, especially when we're younger and we're in, and in, when we're in the, you know, the minutia of a terrible time, like a divorce or, or whatever that trauma is, you sometimes don't necessarily pay attention. And so when you have, you know, uh, those feelings of, oh my gosh, I just spent a hundred dollars that could have been, you know, a week and a half worth of groceries or whatever. Um, and then that happens. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, this is, we aren't as powerful as we think we are, perhaps. I think that's true. And, and you know, um, it is those moments when we, when we step out and we're not sure of the outcome, but we're doing it for a purpose or the, the right reasons, for a vision, for a possibility. Um, that I, think I always call those leaps line of faith. Up. Leaps of faith. And, yes. And... And, uh, you know, I have this, um, this great book that I read quite a bit, and it's called Broken Open. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's written by um, Elizabeth Lesser. And she talks quite often about the once-born, twice-born person. And so the once-born person is, is quite comfortable, uh, or not maybe not even comfortable, but they're in a spot and they're not willing to kind of take that walk into the woods to see what else could be there. And sometimes the universe... Um, gives you a situation that, um, you know, you're either forced into it or you make a choice. And then you then become the twice-born person and you don't turn back. How often do you, does it, you know what I mean? Uh, it's a beautiful piece. I talk about it quite a bit in my course that I have. But how often do you go back to that moment when you were filling your house with flowers? You really did take a leap of faith to feel something different, didn't you? And do you often go back now and go, oh yeah, I'm filling my house with flowers. And, I mean, then it becomes, you know, a metaphor for what you're going through. Mm. You know, I, I wish I could say that I did it as often as I should, you know. Mm-hmm. I think um, every telling and every time we do tell our story, uh, it imprints and embeds in our, us the, the faith that we need to make those leaps. And um, I love that image, twice born. Um, you know, life is, there's nothing in life that is certain. And I think that as people have been moving through this pandemic um, and all the uh, fallout that's occurring for so many people in so many communities, and there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of fear. And you have to keep your eye on the prize. You have to think in terms of what's the vision of my life that I want and realize that we, you know, we have choices that, you know, we must make and taking time to reflect, um, reflect on times. And when trust the choice. And, and trust the choice. Yeah. Yes, and also absolutely. trust them, right? Because the, the things, the thing that human beings do not like or they resist the most is change. So when we're forced into something like uh, COVID, uh, you know, it does, it's like, oh dear, I'm now really, really vulnerable and I don't feel good about what's going on. Where do I go? And you kind of just freeze. It's that, you know, fight, fight, flight, freeze instinct in us. And if you've done it once, it doesn't, you're absolutely right. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to do it every time, but because that takes a lot of power to be able to close your eyes and hand it over to God or to the universe or whatever that higher power is for a human being, that takes a lot of trust. You know, I, it does. And I, you know, I, 
I, I really believe that there's an, you know, my, my business is called the art of living and um, there's an art and science to living. There's that trust and faith and that listening that we have to do. And, um, and there's a science to it. Our, you know, the beauty of our brain is that the brain doesn't know the difference between what you envision and imagine and hold in front of you, or if it was a real experience, it just knows that you've had an experience. And so taking time to reflect on those times when, wow, I took that step, I made that leap, even, and, and I really believe in small steps. It was a small step in many respects, even though it was huge for me to go to the grocery store and buy flowers. But what a difference it made in terms of my um, being able to keep moving on and continue to know that there was possibility at the end of everything. Well, and never mind the fact that once you start, um, once you, you know, so you've done that experience and then you're, you find or your son finds a vase or a, a makeshift vase that has the $100 in there. Like, yikes. <laughs> like, uh, that is just, that gives, that, I think that's so important to remember that, that was the gift that was given to you because you took that step out of the, what you felt would be uh, the, you took the step out of the uncomfortable. Yeah, I think so. Um, You know, and I, I do believe that each one of these small experiences that we have imprints and makes impressions on our children. So when we can show that act of faith and take those steps, then they see that something can turn out well. Even when there's, you know, when they've gone through their own traumas and difficulty, one of the most lovely things that I don't think I've told you this story, but one of the most lovely things that ever happened for me with one of my sons too was that he was going kind of through a rough time as a young adult, and I wrote him a letter and found all these different. This was way before people were sending stuff on the internet, right? But inspirational quotes and things that I thought would be meaningful to him. And I wrote it down as a letter to him. And years later, I received a letter in the mail from him. And it was um, a letter of gratitude, thanking me for my faith in him. And within that letter was a Xerox copy of the letter that I had written to him. But it it was folded. It had creases um, where it had been folded really small so it fit into his wallet. And he said that every time that he got down, he would take that out of his wallet and unwrap it and read it. And it would take him through to the next guy. So, you know, I still have beautiful, beautiful things, but back to imagery, reflection and memory and how those things can help us at times. I think it's really, really Really. So now you have your business, The Art of Living, so you are a, a life coach. Now, what do you specialize in for uh, coaching? Well, a lot of the work that I, I really enjoy doing is working with uh, individuals and families to educate and coach them into repairing and restoring those relationships or building on new relationships. You know, one of the, one of the things that I don't know what the statistics are in Canada, but here in the United States, the average marriage in the U.S. 
lasts about seven years and one out of two marriages end in divorce. Now, what, when I first learned these stats, I knew those, but I didn't know that 75% of people who get divorced try to do it again. They'll either marry or they'll, they'll live together, they'll recouple. But it, one of the statistics that was um, kind of devastating to me is that 66% of people living together or remarried, if they have children, oftentimes that second relationship does not work. It falls apart and there's breakdown because there's a lot of stress. Raising kids is hard. Coming from different family cultures is difficult. And, um, and so... My, my greatest love is to try to work with folks in such a way that they can create a new template for how they can live together and um, create the life that they desire. So my youngest stepdaughter was not receptive to the entire relationship. I think it was, I mean, it's a long story, but so what I did, I would say, I don't want to say I did it wrong because I was only doing what I thought was right at the time, as we all do. But one of the things that I think if I could go back and change it, I would have recognized earlier that I was not their mother. And my my rules um, were very different than her parents' rules on their behavior. And so I think that's where a lot of communication could come in. But you know, when you're talking, when you've got ex-wives or ex-husbands in the mix that don't like each other and they're still holding on to resentments, really the ones that lose are the kids, I think. And so when you've got that blended family bit in there, it takes a great deal of, I think, therapy to come to a place where everyone's treating each other with respect. And they don't, do they? Don't. No, they don't. And there's, I, you know, I fully believe there's not an intention. Um, nobody goes into this thinking it's going to be difficult or that they're trying to make someone else's kids miserable or whatever that is. But, but I think you hit it on the nail. You had, you, you just, people don't know what they don't know. And I certainly at the time when I remarried, I didn't know what I didn't know either. And, you know, I went into my second marriage with a real strong belief that this was, you know, going to be forever and it was going to be so perfect. And because I have this loving Italian stepmother in my experience Okay, I thought, well, this will be a breeze, but doing it as an adult and a parent is a sure different thing than doing it as the recipient of someone who's, who's um, you know, receiving the love of someone. And behind the scenes, they're dealing with all whatever it is that they're dealing with. And I'm sure it wasn't easy for my stepmother either. But, you know, there's a, there's a researcher out there, Judith Wallerstein, who has done some really great research around adult children of divorce. And it's been one of those longevity uh, kinds of uh, research projects. And some of her findings, you know, were very interesting. She was saying that like 45% of the children in a, that, you know, of divorce do well. Well, there's 55% that didn't though. So that's not good to know. And she was saying that 50% of women and 30% of men are still really angry with their former spouses. So a lot of times people haven't figured out what didn't work or how to make it work. And a lot of that can just get dumped into the new relationship without realizing it. And, um, you know, people, what, what she found was that people shared that they felt like they lacked a template for what was a working model for a loving relationship. 
And so you know, you're right. That's my focus is how to create that model with the family so that they can see where they're at, what they're doing and what they want. Yeah. And I think, you know, you raise a good point when, you know, I think a lot of people perhaps, you know, it's great being in love in first at first, isn't it? It's so delicious. But what <laughs> yes, you, if you don't do the work, it's going to end up the same. And that's where that depression comes in. And that's where that frustration comes in. And that's when you really do have to explore your role in the breakdown. And it's not about blame. And it's not about all of those things. I mean, we're, we are all raised differently with, you know, different uh, values, not, you know, the same values, but different values, right? And I think when I look back on, on my time with my family of three children, I, I loved my family of five. Uh, we used to have some really good times, but boy, when it went bad, it went bad. And sadly, I do not have a relationship with my stepdaughters now. And that makes me really sad because I want to, you know, quite often think, oh, maybe I should write them a letter and reach out to them and let them know that it all was coming from a place of love. But, you know, and I mean, my son doesn't have a relationship with my ex-husband now either. And, you know, it's kind of heartbreaking. But then, you know, you're like, okay, well, let's learn and let's move forward. And and, um, that's all you can do. And you can't, you you have to, I, I hate using that term, let it go. But you really do just have to forgive yourself and hopefully one day maybe the universe will let you come back with those kids and you can have a real adult conversation. You know what I mean? Well, yes. And, you know, um, I think my grandmother, wise old woman, lived to 104. She, uh, she used to say people do the best they can. And I think that's true with what they know. And so, you know, the other... We are so flooded with information today. It's all out there. I mean, you can buy a book, get this, get that, Google anything, but it's the implementation, the putting into practice, the finding how to create that practice for yourself within the relationship or within the circumstances that you are in as well. That I think that's where having a coach, whether it's a life coach, relationship coach, a therapist, whatever it is, can be so helpful because there's that person that is consistently committed to holding you in heart and mind, not just while you're doing the work with them, but outside when you're doing the work on your own. And I think that's the value of the coaching model, which um, you know, I'm just I, really for. Yeah, I agree with you. And I mean, I, um, I don't uh, work with, uh, I mean, I certainly have done worked with couples, but um I work more with individuals and I think the thing I I feel is that people are, and I'm forever saying there's no magic pill. I'm not going to wave a magic wand. I'm not going to. You have to really slog through a lot of really honest and vulnerable conversations with yourself. And people don't seem to want to do that because that hurts. That sucks when you have to do it. It so does, doesn't it? I mean, I really do. And, uh, you know, it's human nature. It's the brain to avoid pain. None of us wants to walk into that. And certainly none wants to take any responsibility for something they may have done wrong. Nobody is an angel. And of course, nobody is a devil all in all. I mean, we both, we all have our bit. And if we're really honest with ourselves, that's okay. But do you feel that, Diane? Like, I think the problem with 
all the information overload we get is it's all promising the magic pill. Nobody says, um, excuse me, this is really hard work. I'm saying it now because that's what I do for a living. I'm, I know you do it as well. But it's like, excuse me, there, this is not easy. Whoever said this was easy? You know, I, I listened to a very, very good uh, interview with um, Anderson Cooper and he was interviewing Stephen Colbert and they were talking about their grief process. And it was so honest, that conversation. And Stephen Colbert said, you know, life is a gift and it's also all about suffering. And I thought, oh, wow. And it wasn't said in such a negative way, but he was absolutely right. Yeah. It, I mean, I think that's, that's spot on. And, you know, any work that, that couples may be doing together, there's so much personal work that has to happen And you've got to do your own work in order to have those crucial conversations with people where you're actually telling the truth. And if you haven't done the whole of your own work, then of course the the idea and the desire is to flee as quickly as you can. Um, And even if you've done your work, (laughs) that fight or flight freeze uh, back brain thing will pop right in as soon as um, anyone begins to feel like they're being attacked. You know, the, at the simplest form, I, I look at self-care from the perspective of we're either in learning mode where we're open and nurturing and curious and taking information in, or we're going to be in protecting mode, which is where we're covering and pushing back and creating those walls and finding justifications and not listening because it's too painful. So it's important to to really get clear on what are the things that trigger me to go from learning mode to protecting mode? What are the things that, you know, because everybody's gone, we've all got our hot buttons. And then being able to have the some techniques and skills to be able to acknowledge and then set aside and be present with someone. I know I feel like I'm talking around the block here, but it's such a huge and important thing. Um, Oh, no, I don't think you are. And I think you're hitting, you know, for me, and I mean, I get it because I, I, I do the work as well. I mean, we're never above what we speak about, right? But one of the things that, um, as you were telling that part was, we take things so personally, we take someone else's um, pain personally, you know what I mean? Like, if I had to look at, you know, my ex, my marriage, um, my, my ex-husband was a sweetheart. But he was also very damaged. But so was I. And so if we had both bothered to just stop and maybe take a look at what was really going on, maybe the outcome would have been different. But Mm -hmm. um, if you can look at it as a gift and not take it personally, but we do, we take it personally. And and, um, we've got to get our egos out of this because I I just, you know, there's just so much information that's bogging us down. and, you know, we're, we are led by a lot of social media, you know, all the posts are always about smile and happy and perfect families and blah, blah, blah. And I think that's what really messes people up is, you know, these couples that are always posting, you know, their undying love for each other. I love that. I think that's wonderful. But what did you have to get to to get to that point? That's the part that's not being shared. And I think that's the part that needs to be shared. It's like, ah, yeah, if you ask any couple that's been married for 60 years, I am certain they didn't float through it on love. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> you know, um, I don't know where I heard this. I always, 
I really, I mean, I, I'm a voracious reader and I really try to, I always believe it's important to give um, acknowledgement to where you get stuff. So forgive me, I can't think of this, but I love the acronym WAIT, uh, W-A-I-T. Why am I talking? <laughs> What's that? Speak to that more, Diane. What do you mean by well, that? You know, one of the hardest things when we're um, trying to have a conversation, an honest conversation, whether it's with ourselves or our counterparts, a colleague, a spouse, a, a son or daughter, so often you mentioned the ego, the ego gets ready and it's there, ready to protect and create the structure and uh, justify and put all this stuff out there. And and that's why our agendas often lead when what we need to do is be listening. And the acronym, you know, wait, it's like, it's one of those, wait, stop, wait, pause. Why am I talking right now? You know, if, if I could stop and allow that other person to have their peace, have their reality, it is their reality. Just because I don't understand it or see it at this point doesn't mean it's not real. And their experience is very important. So, you know, I find that it's a good practice to have ways. That's one of them. You know, I like to use that acronym, WAIT, for myself. And also to think in terms of when I'm working with my grandchildren or a client, you know, finding ways to pause and not be the one speaking. When we are talking, we're not learning. When we are listening, that's when we're in learning mode. That's when we're able to hear something that maybe we didn't understand or know from that perspective yet. And I think the trick is to do it without judgment. And, yes. you know, quite often you hear that in a lot of group, group uh, settings. It's like, okay, you know, here's some housekeeping. Stop judging. Listen, listen with love and listen with kindness. And I think we forget it sometimes. I don't think we do. I know we do because we're so darn judgy as human beings. We are. And, you know, um, our ability to evaluate and classify and categorize, it's a really important, important skill set. The whole point of being able to put things in categories is to make sense of our world. What we forget to do is, like once we put the categories on, said, okay, let me put this label here and this one here and this one here. We forget to rip it off. Now that we've categorized it and it's made sense, let's find out more. That means you have to rip the label off and go deeper. Mm-hmm. And that's <laughs> oh, just so interesting. This is why I love you. I mean, we just get into these conversations and this is why you're so good at what you do. And when you're, when you're talking about those things, I, I, I'm sitting here going, oh my gosh, I need, I need to, I can think of a few situations where I'm like, oh yeah, why was I talking? <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, depending on our learning style, some of us are more, we take things more personally than others do. I'm a big advocate of, and I believe it's really important in relationships, family dynamics, team and business dynamics, what it, what's the learning style of each member of that team? You know, how do they take in information? Are they methodical type people? Are they imaginative people? Do they think in systems? Do they do a trial and error kind of process? 
because how we do these different things, it's how we're wired. It's our hard wiring. It doesn't usually change. It's kind of comes with birth, right? And experiences, do you think? Like when you're talking to someone who has post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, particularly the veterans, they, these, these people are carrying a lot. We don't give them enough, I, I believe. But even people who have been traumatized as young adults, so you can see it just sets them off. And so in a case of when you're trying to be in a relationship with someone who gets triggered very easily, you know, how do you as the, the supportive self in that part of the relationship, how do you even juggle that? Because when someone's triggered, as you well know, Diane, they are not listening because they're being driven by their uh, instinct to survive. Uh, that's very true. And, um, you know, I've worked with some clients uh, who have dealt with anxiety from different kinds of perspectives, whether it's PTSD from a veteran experience, you know, having been to war, and then just folks who've had traumatic experiences growing up in their, in their lives. And, um, you know, I'm a big believer in the power of the breath. And I do a lot of breathing work and breath work with, um, with my clients. And also I do it with myself. When I get triggered, I realize that part of what I need to do is come back to myself. And um, a beautiful way to do that is to do a deep breath in and out, kind of from the belly, you know, and breathe in. So you're doing a count like on four seconds and then hold it for four seconds. And then release on four. And if you're really triggered, you're, you're really aroused, um, release that slowly on seven. Because it forces the body and the breath, it forces the, the nervous system to, and the parasympathetic nervous system to calm down. It lowers the heart rate. And we can start to think with our frontal lobe as opposed to our back brain. Doing that kind of uh, breathing exercise can really help get some of that anxiety under control. And if you're in a tight conversation and you're feeling like you're moving into protecting mode, it's a wonderful way to get back and present so you can lean in and really listen. Now, I, I don't ever advocate anybody stick it around if things get physical or it's there's some no. personal safety issues. But, you know, a lot of times we create uh, non-safe issues because of our activity. So when we can control our own responses rather than our reactions, and we can respond to people instead, that's when we can begin to have better relationships, better conversations, and really find out, you know, what's really going on. And also knowing that we can't, most of the time people want to be heard. They don't want you to come in and fix anything. They just want to know that you heard them. That is absolutely right. And, you know, with my background in customer service, I was at one time, uh, I had a big job as the uh, customer service rep for the area and people were upset. And when people don't, uh, when they, things aren't going the way they envisioned, they're upset. And I, I soon learned not to take any of it personally. They were just venting. And if yes. you just stand, you just stood there and vented. Now, having said that, in my if in a personal relationship, if anyone had ever spoken to me the way some of those customers did, 
that it's just a weird, I mean, I, I know now it's like, well, don't take it personally. They're just venting. Nine times out of 10, people would apologize after because they're so, they're just, they're just so ramped up on, in that moment. It, you know, it takes two people to have a dysfunctional, you know, breakdown. If you're just standing there, and like you say, it's totally different if someone's coming at you and they're physically assaulting you. That's a whole different conversation. But generally speaking, when you're upset with something that's not going well, you don't know what the background story is. Maybe this person had a horrible 10 days of a vacation, you know? Maybe they had to sit in an airport for 24 hours because of a delayed flight. So now their, their uh, stress level is, is, you know, their stressometer, as I always like to say, is broken at the moment. It's interesting how in those moments, you can, it's even like with road rage, you know what I mean? It's standing in a lineup somewhere where you just see people having these meltdowns and you know, you don't know what that person is going through in terms, maybe they've just lost a, a sibling or maybe they've just lost a, a marriage or whatever. So I think to be able to be able, like you say, is to stand in your kind of your own truth and your own boundary and just go, okay, hold on. Do I need to take this personally? And that's really hard to do, isn't it? Yeah, For me, it is. I it mean, is. good Lord, I'm, my father's Greek, my mother's French. I was raised by Italians. I, it's not, I'm not known for my calmness. There's there's a a, a American icon poet Robert Frost who was really big when I was a kid, but um, he he had a poem which I cannot remember the whole thing, but I will always remember what he said in it, which is "Good fences make good neighbors." Mm -hmm. I was a kid going, "What the heck does that mean?" (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. But it really is something, you know, it's about boundaries and being able to say, this is where I stop and start. This is where you stop and start. This, And then these are the expectations for how we're going to relate to one another. You know, agreed upon expectations are probably the most foundational thing that you can, I think, that you can teach individuals in a family or couples to be able to uh, work through. Because it, you know, if you could agree on what you are going to expect, great. The thing about it is that life is fluid. It, you know, your boundaries and your expectations may stand for a while, but I think about today with COVID, you know, people are working remotely. Everybody's, you know, working home. Home and work is flooding together. Kids are at school, but they're not at school. They're at home. Expectations for who's, who's cooking, who's cleaning. How are you, how and what are you doing when? It has to change, which means we have to have conversations again. I think one of the hardest things for me as a young parent was realizing that I had just figured out how to like do the right thing with my kids. And then they grew into the next phase and I had no clue what I was going to do next. (laughs) Yeah, funny how that is. You know what else is really interesting? Is if a if a girl so we've got two friends two girls two men a boy just friends having a conversation and you don't necessarily agree it's quite easy to say you know what I think we should agree to disagree because I love your I love our friendship right and it's like yeah okay it's fine but we don't do that necessarily in our closest relationships we're so mean to we can be so mean to each other and I think that's it. And you know what? The hardest thing to break up, it's hard to break up with a partner or a husband or whatever. 
but it's hard to break up with a friend too, isn't it? Yeah, it is absolutely. And I, you know, I think back to, gosh, I mean, got me, <laughs> you know, I'm a coach. I'm supposed to do all this stuff. And yeah, I'm yeah. so mean to my husband and he's so good to me. You know, it's like, wow, it's you know, the, the people that we um, can let our hair down with, our guard down with, oftentimes we forget that, hey, remember this person that you love and care about? who loves and cares about you, they also deserve your respect, tolerance, and love, your acceptance. And you will not necessarily always agree. It doesn't mean that love isn't present. So if you want to keep it present, I think you do have to learn how to have those conversations and admit, wow, I was really in protecting mode. I just, you know, lashed out to in my in defense and I didn't need to. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that people, the you know, just in my experience with dealing or, you know, working with people is the hardest, it really is uh, the hardest words to say are I'm sorry, because that puts you into a vulnerable place. And yeah, it, it really is really hard work to be respectful of the people that love you the most in the world. And I think yeah. you, it, it's, it's almost like it's become a safe place you know, that person is safe, you know, on a level um, that, that you're safe with them. So you can kind of just kind of melt down and do what you need to do, but you need to do it with respect. And I think you always should have to go back and have a conversation about it because that's how resentments build. And that's why, you know, I think that's one of the reasons divorce rates are so high because sometimes people don't just, you know, blow up and get it, the, clear the air mm-hmm. and, and it gets to a point where it's like, you know what? I don't want to fix it anymore. Yeah. And you not know, realizing that the next one they go into, and not it's not the case always, obviously, but you go into it again and it fails again, or it doesn't work again. I don't like using that word failure, but it doesn't work again. And that's where it's like, well, what what's going on here, right? Call yeah, I think that, that, you know, I back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier too, you know, most of us, we, you know, most people don't really live for confrontation, you know? It's like, okay, no. avoid this conversation, maybe it'll all blow over or it'll write itself on its own or let me wait for the right time because timing's everything. But if, if you don't create and carve out space to have the conversations that need to be had, then what happens is things get sandbagged and people forget, and then, but the the brain and body doesn't forget. So some situation comes along later and a trigger occurs and all of a sudden what you've been ignoring for however long just shows its ugly head. And so, you know, taking those daily or weekly inventories of where am I now? What am I thinking? There's a really great children's book out there called Sitting Still Like a Frog, and it's by Eline Snell, and it really is mindfulness exercises for kids, but I mean, we're all big kids, right? And she does this one thing, which is uh, checking in on your personal weather report, and I love that. You know, it's a great thing to kind of say, okay, what's, what's going on with me? What's going on with the weather inside here? How am I feeling right now? Am I angry, upset? Is something kind of tearing on me? Do I feel a, do I feel a storm coming? 
okay, what is that? Taking time and then just jotting down, you know, like some of the mind activity that's going on or body sensations that occur while you're thinking this through. And then being able to hit the pause button so you can name it. And then, you know, there's that old, I love the saying, name it to tame it. Once you've said what's so, now you have, you know what the problem is, you've defined it and you can work through it. So if you could do that personal weather report and then say, hey, I just did the weather report and I need to share with you. And I'd like to hear yours here again. What's going on? Yeah, and I think it's important to note too that uh, the weather report is you don't need to be standing in the tornado to recognize that you're in a tornado. I think you need to just wait it out a bit. You know what I mean? You're right. Timing is everything. Right, right. And it's, you're not going to win. <laughs> but the other thing is, let's let's uh, do a check-in too. What's my personal weather report? It is sunny, cloudless, blue sky kind of day. Feeling great. What does that mean for me? And wow, how is that affecting other people when the weather report is positive. Yeah, so, that's true. I think you just you just hit something there is most people check in on that, you know, crappy weather report when it's crappy instead of, hey, you know what? I'm just so grateful for you today or I'm just so, you know, happy that, you know, we have our family and blah, blah, blah. And whatever it is, right? I think you're absolutely right. We do forget to check in on that, don't we? Yes. Yeah, we absolutely do. We do. It makes me think of a story. I actually did a blog on it. It's on my website. Um, but tell me it, your website. Tell us your website. It's, it's uh, www.dianweekly.com. And the this particular blog is called A Little Letter for You. And it came about that it was actually, I believe it was August 8th. And I'd gone into my computer and I was trying to, you know, clean off my desk and sort of organize my files and all this kind of stuff. And I found in, in the ex file explorer in my computer this letter that my granddaughter had written me on my, on my computer. And it was just the sweetest thing. But, and please just go to my website and read it. because I'm trying <laughs> I to. Do it justice, I promise you, if I, if I do it now. But essentially, she wrote me a letter a year ago to the day in August 8th, 2019, a year ago to the day um, I had opened it up, right? Um, just to tell me that she thought I was amazing and that she loved me. She was 10 at the time. She just turned 11. And, um, and that I needed to just keep being myself and keep doing what I do. And who oh my gosh, the sweetest thing. And, uh, and so I called her back and got a voicemail and read her what she had said to me and then left my message. But, uh, you know, I believe in that we really need to keep closing the loop on love and let the people that we love yeah. know that. Well, and it's right. And, you know, I mean, my granddaughter can't do that yet, but um, she's two in a bit and she's just so darn cute. I mean, I won't even get me started on that one. But um, last time I saw her, she, we had sat down and she loves to look at the pictures on the, on the phone, on the iPhone, right? But she was, had her legs and her arms wrapped around me. Her head was nestled right into my, my neck. And I just thought, oh my gosh, this child was so filled with love in that moment. And it was just so pure and it was so honest. 
you know, I, it's just like, it's like, oh my gosh, that moment was so special to know that you are loved so much by another human being that has no agenda other than to look for pictures on the iPhone, right? Right. And just to be close. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. That is so beautiful. Oh my gosh. You know what, Diane? I think we could talk for, well, I know we can and we have done. You know what, what I liked about this podcast today is that we just had a really, really profound conversation for me. I mean, just through you telling, you telling me your experiences and of course what you do as, your, as, as a coach, but it made me think too. And that's what I love about our conversations. We aren't as coaches above anything. This is what makes us love the work we do because we are doing it ourselves every day. Mm-hmm. If we try. Yeah, Helen, it's just a pleasure to to talk with you and share and share those things that are so important. And, you know, there's a lot going on in the world today that will distract and take our attention away from the things that really are the most important, you know, mm-hmm. and urgency aside, connecting, staying connected and finding ways to reconnect. You know, that's that's the whole task of being a human being, really. Mm-hmm. It's true. And we're not going to get to see each other this year, as I mentioned earlier, because of COVID, you live in you, States, I live in Canada. Thank God for Zoom, because I can see you anytime I want to. Absolutely. <laughs> Just have to book a meeting. Diane, thank you for joining me today. Diane Weekly, tell me again your website. It's uh, com. It's spelled uh, D-I-A-N-E-W-E-E-K-L-E-Y.com. And, um, you know, we're kind of revitalizing and refreshing the website. So the new site will be coming out soon and it will be called um, dianeweekly.com, but the art of living. Uh, right now it's, it's Diane Weekly coaching and a lot of different kinds of interesting things. And, oh no, who knows? Never a dull moment, but I do love the name of your business, The Art of Living, because it really is, it really needs to be intentional and it needs to be, I mean, I think that's why we we, uh, connected so easily because we really are very, very similar in our work and just in our experiences and and, uh, I, I adore you. Thank you so, so much for joining me today. Whoa, and there's my dog. Thanks. Oh, he's saying hi to me too. Awesome. <laughs> he loves you as well, Helen. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> continue to be safe and we will continue to talk more. I know that um, we may have to do a podcast on some other things that we're talking about. We, you know, I think it's uh, very exciting uh, stuff that's coming up. Absolutely. I will be um, looking forward to our next conversation, Helen. Thank you so much for having me. Can't wait. Well, have a beautiful day. And you have been listening to Sharing Stories with Helen Rose. Have an awesome day. Thank you for listening to Sharing Stories with Helen Rose. To learn more about Helen's journaling retreats, speaking engagements, and life coaching, or to sign up for her newsletter, please visit HelenRose.ca. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? (laughs) I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. 
What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating one million dollars in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven-module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand, and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.